Our scripture reading today is from Genesis chapter 11. Now, the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, If as one people, speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Amen. Amen and welcome. And of course, as you can see, we're moving through the book of Genesis. Before we begin, just want to happily acknowledge uh, and celebrate Black History Month along with many of you. And yeah, I'm just to, to honor the many, yeah, and significant and ongoing contributions of our African American people in our nation and in our church. I know I wouldn't be who I am without the many and significant and ongoing contributions of African American people in my life. Uh, and I'm also glad to be in a place. Not only where we can recognize that, but where we know that, you know, honoring one person or group doesn't mean we're not actually loving and honoring everybody, right? So anyway, uh, the Bible says to give honor where it's due, and that's certainly my goal and heart this morning. All right, sermon, here we go. (laughs) If you are a person who cares about the future, and I'm sure you are, if you're a person who cares about, you know, all the people in the world, and I'm sure you do. I think you ought to care about the cities of the world. The cities of the world, yeah. And here's why. Did you know the trajectory of humanity, of the human race, the trajectory of humanity is towards cities. And even the planet itself, whole planet becoming, in a way, a kind of a great city. Consider this. In 1950, only 30% of humanity lived in cities. Just a few years ago, 2014, for the first time, the majority of people on the planet now live in in cities. In 30 years, that number is projected to be two-thirds all the people in the world that live in a city with one out of eight people living in a short list of 28 megacities. I think that's astonishing. And I also think if you were to ask the question, well, how can we as Christian people influence the future of the world? I think the answer is simple. It's simply by influencing our cities. Makes sense, right? And so today, as we look at this third consecutive narrative of universal judgment, it'll get better next week, I promise. We actually come to something I think it takes the whole Bible to make sense of, and that's this. Today, for the first time in the Bible, we're introduced to the concept of, at length of this city, of the city. And this is important because cities are actually a really big idea. They're a big deal in the Bible, and therefore you can't understand the Bible and its big message of large-scale redemption until we understand what a city is, what a city is supposed to be, and what God's heart for the city is. 
How can we get all of that? I think by looking here today at Genesis 11, what do you need to see from this passage? From the story you may be familiar with, the Tower of Babel, three things. We're going to see the goodness of the city. Second, we're going to see the brokenness of the city. And finally, take a look at the healing of the city. Look at these more or less briefly and then spend quite a bit of time applying them at the end. Here we go. Number one, let's look at the goodness of the city. To begin, I'll ask you again another question. Have you ever asked yourself, why are there cities at all? No hands. Great. Probably not a, not a really good rhetorical question to start off with. These are the things that apparently keep me up at night, as you can see. So, but why are there cities at all? Why would we build you know, cities? Why would we be people who do that, right? who gravitate toward that? Well, I want to suggest to you, the answer is, that we build cities because we are people made in the image of God. And the Bible shows clearly that God himself is a city builder. Look at this. Hebrews 11.10 says that Abraham, we'll get to him next week. Abraham, while he lived in tents, he was looking ahead, he said, to a kind of a city, it says, whose architect and builder is God. And what Abraham glimpses in part in his life, we see full At the end of the Bible, when you get to the end of the Bible, the book of Revelation, do you know what the the heavenly, the, the biblical vision of the future is? Well, it's actually one great city. The earth becoming a kind of a city. It's called the New Jerusalem. And again, the biblical vision of the future isn't just humans escaping their bodies, right? Humans escaping the world, but God himself bringing a city out of heaven, it says, that he has built to the planet, and the power from that city is now transforming the whole world into a kind of a new kind of a city, the kind of a city it was supposed to be all along, where God now dwells with people, real bodies, resurrected ones. See, the point is, at the heart of the vision the Bible has for the future, at the heart of the new heavens and the new earth is a new city. A new city filled with peace and harmony between all peoples and with nature itself. Filled with wealth, filled with work. It's the city that is to come and that we will be, and in a way, are citizens of right now. Therefore, the point is, cities, when they are at their best now, are dim hints, they're glimpses when they're good, of what that city is and will be in the future, what the world will be like one day. So then let's ask, well, what is the goodness of the city? What is the city supposed to be? By looking at that city, what are our cities now supposed to be? Three things primarily. Let's take a look at them quickly. First of all, the Bible shows us that cities are supposed to be places of safety. Places of safety. When they're at their best... Isn't this what cities do? Uh, You can see uh, the people here in Genesis 11, they kind of hint at it. They say, let's build this city and tower. And so otherwise, they'll say, we will be scattered across the face of the earth. Well, when you're scattered, what are you? Vulnerable. When you're together, to quote the new planet of the apes, you know, humans, come on, together. Yeah, three of you saw it. Thank you. Gail, I like that. That was... Sounded better than I could give you. So, yeah, humans together are strong. Where, where, for example, do our, do our homeless brothers and, sis- and sisters come to live? Where? In cities, yeah. Thank you, Pastor Brett. You're getting the point. Yeah, he heard it first service too. So, cities. Do they live primarily in the countryside? No. Do they live even in the suburbs? 
No, they live in cities. They live in bridges or parks or places in the city. Why? Because there's just greater odds of finding safety there, shelter there, food there, kindness there. When cities are at their best, they provide a place of shelter, safety for those who need it. Second, cities are also supposed to be a place of innovation. Innovation. You know, it's no surprise that this enormous building project takes place in the middle of a city. Why? Because cities are supposed to be places of innovation, right? Uh, Where is new technology developed primarily? Come on, in the city. Yeah. Where is most great music made like at Mosaic Church, for example? Yeah. Theater and dance performed. It's in the city. Where is great architecture, great engineering on display? It's in the city. Why? Because the city, the pressures of it in a way, have the ability to bring out the best in you. To bring out your potential, your gifts, abilities, talents. And the city of God in the future, by the way, won't be devoid of labor. Our future as citizens there will not be one on a cloud with a diaper and a heart. And anytime you see that or think that, you just rebuke that in Jesus' name. Make that go away. That is not our future. We will be fully human. The best of who we are will be revealed. See, now with sin and death ended, we will work and we will labor and dream and create and explore for an eternity. Will there be innovation then? Yes. So let's innovate now right? And that's why your work, your labor, your career, to whatever degree you do this, to innovate and bring wealth and economy into a city, that is good and gracious, holy work of God. And third, cities are also supposed to be a place of justice. Justice. If you flash forward just a bit from Genesis into the book of Numbers and the Pentateuch, you look ahead. When God was doing some urban planning, Do you know God's an urban planner? Yes, he is. We've already said that. Urban planner. In the early stages of the nation of Israel, he specifically created certain cities to be cities of refuge or asylum, as the Hebrew word says. They were really cities of justice. They were cities where you went if you couldn't get a fair trial or if someone were hunting you. Uh, or if, if, if you, couldn't, you, know, you couldn't find shelter from people who were after your head or your, they wanted your blood or you needed security from false accusation on purpose, God set up communities in the middle of his nation where justice was the founding, organizing principle, the whole community. Think about it. When an immigrant, for example, comes into our nation from a, from a war-torn or violence or impoverished place, where does the immigrant typically go? Do they go to the countryside no to tiny towns in the texas panhandle no they go where you would go if they were you right they go to the cities why because cities are places where help and public assistance and services are available along with the protection of horrors from a past life why because we know cities are supposed to be places of justice asylum that protect the weak and the vulnerable will the city of god be a place of justice safety from sin yes then let's make our cities cities of justice now and because that is our future because that's what's in the heart of god for us our calling as christian people our mission is to do mission now in the light of what that great city will be one day so that's number one that is the goodness of the city cities were made to be good they can be good and as we'll see one day they will be good that's number one but number two Let's also sort of turn the coin over and look at the brokenness of the city because 
It goes without saying our cities aren't always good, are they? They can be places that grind people down, where there's shootings, right? Uh, Where there's drug opioid crises, right? School shootings, all these things. The list goes on. Why is that? Why is there many times, seems like more often than not, brokenness instead of goodness? Well, there's a few analysis. First, there's a Liberal analysis, traditionally, which says that cities are broken because they're filled with poverty and they're racism, and it's because of the hard-hearted conservatives that things aren't getting better. Then there's the conservative analysis, which says that cities are broken because of you know, too much big government, too much government interference, and it's just the dirty liberals who mess things up. Then there's the analysis of many people in the church sometimes, which says that really it's the, the atheists and the secular media who are breaking our cities. But I want you to know something, see something from this passage, because this passage is telling us that all those things, though they all may be true in part, all those things, all the ways in which cities get broken are just symptoms of something far larger. This is telling us that when we see all those things, the racism and the poverty and the times where government puts its nose where it shouldn't, because that's actually happened before, right? In human history, it has. Yep. This is telling us that when we see those things and all those things, they're just symptoms of something far larger, far deeper, and far more profound. What is it? This passage tells us, verse four, it says, then they said, come, let us Build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. What causes brokenness in cities? What brings the brokenness is saying in our cities is the combined pride and self-centeredness of a group of people who band together to make a name for themselves. All the other stuff, therefore, is just downstream. All the other stuff is symptoms. All the brokenness downstream comes from someone or some group upstream looking to make a name for themselves. Perhaps the best case study of this is just from World War II, from the Third Reich, right? I mean, why was there murder? Why was there the ethnic cleansing, the racism? Why, in a way, was there not only just the the six million Jews, right, who, who, who died, but why was there the 60 million people worldwide who died during that era was because one man wanted to make a name for himself and the people around him sensing his power wanted to make a name for themselves and then a nation having been humiliated in world war one systematized all that evil and wanted to make a name for itself and they built a kind of a tower called the third reich which waged war against god humanity See, the world experienced, right, brokenness downstream because someone was trying to make a name for himself. A nation was trying to make a name for themselves upstream. And throughout the Bible, though, we see it's really only God who has the authority and power and legitimacy to do this, who makes a a name for people. We see that God says to Abraham, next chapter, chapter 12, God says to Abraham, oh, I am going to make your name great. God changes uh, Jacob's name to, to Isaac, Simon's to Peter. He makes their names great. So when you see this, what this is telling you, when people try to make a name for themselves, it's showing you they are acting, here's the word, intentionally against God. And you can see that, know that from two things. First, how they build. And second, what they build. How first are they building? Well, this is an incredibly important detail. Hebrew narrative is always very sparse. Details are crucial. It says they used brick 
instead of stone, and tar instead of or for in the place of mortar. Well, why is this a big deal? Well, again, this narrative is on the heels of which narrative? Which story? The flood, right? The great flood. What did Noah use to keep water out of what he built? His building project. Pitch, tar, yeah. Same thing here. What does this mean? Oh, can you see? These people's minds, they're making this God-proof. They're making this flood-proof. They're saying, God, our tower will last forever because it can withstand anything you choose to bring against us. You sent a flood once, great God, do your worst. We're ready for you. This planet, this city, this tower, it's ours. It's ours. We can keep you out. But it gets even worse because what they're building isn't just any kind of a tower. It's what's called a ziggurat, an ancient place of worship. And you can see this because I tell you their whole plan is to have a a tower, a building that reaches to the heavens. The goal of this kind of a tower, of a ziggurat, was to build it as high as possible so that when you climbed all those steps, you'd be able to meet your God at the top. And the higher that you got, the more steps that you climbed, the more works-based religion you did, can you see? The closer to the gods you got, the more power and blessing you or your culture or your nation would receive. What are these people doing? They are, hear me, gathering the raw material around them and utilizing the raw material within them to fashion a kind of technological weapon against God. And if they finish this, God says, he says, nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. And so God scatters them. God confuses them. Now, some people don't like this at this point. They think God is like personally threatened by this. That's why he did something about it. He's threatened by that. And that's why he stopped this. Listen, I don't think so. You know, in the previous story, God literally controlled the elements of the planet. Right. I don't think he's worried about what a group of Bronze Age industrialists with bricks can do. So if he's not worried about what they can do to him, what is he worried about? I think he's worried about, yeah, what these people can do to everyone else. Everyone else. This kind of a thing is why he later judges the cities, also cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. It says the outcry from the surrounding peoples had gone up against those cities and he came to judge them in his own way. They had become cities of cruelty, of oppression, not cities of refuge, innovation, and justice. And with no language barrier to stop this group of people at Babel, nothing is going to stop them from conquering and enslaving the world. That's what God is concerned with. That's what's happening in this story. And this, therefore, in Genesis 11, I hope you'll see, this point of the story, this point of the book marks the total collapse of humanity. This moment marks the end of the line of human beings. It's gone from bad before the flood now to worse after the flood. Every bit, can you see? Can you see it in your mind's eye? Every bit of power and technology and creativity the human race can muster is now outgathered in the plain of Shinar, modern-day Iraq, by the way, to construct against God a giant middle finger raised against the sky, God-proofed with pitch, people-proofed with their pride, designed to reject the Creator and conquer what they could. That's what's going on here. That's why this story is here. They're gathered together, moving against God, moving against humanity. But let's, 
let's not be too hard on these people because don't we do the same sometimes? I know I have. A, a number of years ago when I was kind of first starting out in campus ministry, recent college students at the University of Texas. Yeah, remember going to our, our ministry's annual uh, big conference and I, I won, uh, like the, the, uh, the movie A Christmas Story says, a major award. A major award. After many years of labor and work and prayer and believing in all that, our ministry had really grown and flourished, and a lot of people came to Christ, and I was given the, the Campus Minister of the Year Award. Yeah, it's a nice one. I felt so good about it. I was so excited about it, and so uh, I went out after the, the ceremony and the award member calling Carrie, my wife, on the phone. She wasn't there. She was at home with our one-month-old at the time, and I called her uh, full of what was more or less or really more uh, pride uh, in that moment. And I said, baby, you'll never believe it. I won the Campus Minister of the Year Award. I'll never forget her saying, oh, that's nice. Hey, I'm, listen, I'm on the other line right now. Can I call you back? <laughs> I remember being so deflated. So, you know, kind of confused, so angry at her for not honoring me. Doesn't the Bible say something about wives honoring their husbands? Yeah. Ah. Why was I so upset? Justifying it, right? Bible verses. It was all about me, my tower, everybody could see. Let's be honest. How many of you moved to Austin to, like, make a name for yourself? Hmm? Or maybe you went to school to get those credentials because you're imagining what all the people are going to say about you if you've got that in front of or behind your name. How many of you wanted to make a lot of money, huh? Or how many of you get unbelievably angry maybe when you're criticized or you're critiqued? Maybe when your kids don't perform well. I, I coach lots of kids' sports and I see dad after dad going ballistic when their child's performance isn't good because their child's performance is their performance and their, children's are, their children are the ways they make a name for themselves and build a monument to who they are. Listen, God, God's not threatened by you having a name. I want you to hear that. He's not threatened by anything anyone does. Because he's God, right? And this is actually trying to show you that when it says that God came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. It doesn't actually come through here in a way, but this is supposed to be Bible humor at this point because you're supposed to be saying, well, God had to, he had to come down to see. Why does, why does God have to see? How this thing was supposed to be like visible from space or something. Wasn't it supposed to be like this big, huge tower? I mean, why does God need to... Come down. Oh, wait. That's right. He doesn't. This is God's way of saying, so, so you think the thing that you're building is really big. Well, let me just get down on my hands and knees and come, you know, like pick it out of the rug down there in the carpet. Get my microscope out and see the thing. Oh, there it is. The thing all of you made together. How about that? See, everything we do is small compared to him. All we do is a drop in the bucket, maybe, of what he can do. He isn't threatened by these people having a name. He blesses, again, people with that thing all through the Bible. He gives freely. People honor, gifts, a name, blessing. That's his heart for humanity. He isn't threatened by them having a name for themselves. And he's not even threatened by you having a name for yourself. So do you know, though, who is actually threatened? By you making a name for yourself. Ooh, 
You are. You are. You're the one threatened by that desire, wanting to make a name for you. Because in the end, if that is your goal, here's why you're threatened. Because it's all going to backfire on the end and harm, cause harm, cause harm to the people you really care about. What you fear, this is showing you, will come upon you. Look at these people. Why do they want to build a tower? Oh, it's unbelievably ironic. They want to build a tower so they won't be scattered. In the end, what happens to them? Oh, they're scattered far worse than they ever could have imagined. And this is where now, if God himself doesn't intervene in human history, something's lost. Something will be lost, humanity will be lost, will be divided, will be scattered at war and at each other's throats for forever. So what would God do? He launched a plan to get the planet back. And while we'll look at how he started that plan, where he started that plan at length next week, I want to now show you focus here on what the goal of that plan was, what that plan in the end would produce The goal of God's plan, intervening in human history, was to bring about, number three, finally, the healing of the city. Flash forward to the New Testament. Once again, centuries later, God came down again to the city of man. Another city. Once more, he came and he got involved in the world of people he had made only this time. He came not to, not to bring confusion, but to end confusion. This time he came not to bring judgment, but to bear the judgment. This time he came not to scatter the people, but to gather all peoples. Look, in the Gospel of Matthew, as, as Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus Christ rode toward his city, the city of Jerusalem, in the last week of his life, he looked out over that city, knowing what they were about to do to him, and he cried out. Look at how he cries out over his city. Matthew 23 says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets, stone those sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. What's he saying? He's saying, oh, I long to gather you. I long to bring you all together. I long to end all the violence, all the ways in which you've been scattered, all the ways your violence ends humanity, breaks you, grinds you down. He says, I want all of that to end. So what would it take? Well, it would take Jesus Christ, Son of God, going to the cross Him, the maker and builder of the world, to go and be scattered, right? Himself to be pulled apart. Him being divided. Him dying. Him crying out in confusion. God, my God, why have you forsaken me? His own name became nothing. They they mocked him, called him not by his name, but by the, the, the insult, the king of the Jews. He gave his own name and honor and all his glory away. Why? It's so that... As he prayed in John 17, we could be one. We could be one. Look at this. 40 days after this, 40 days after Jesus was resurrected, and hundreds of people, by the way, eyewitnesses, saw him come back to life. He returned to heaven, but he told his followers, oh, don't leave the city. Don't leave Jerusalem. Stay here. You're going to be clothed with power. And 10 days after that, the book of Acts records what happened in Acts chapter 2. On the day of Pentecost, a Jewish holiday, the Holy Spirit came down in a way, launched the church, filled those believers. And those people, those 120, they were surrounded, it says, by people from all nations, speaking all languages under heaven. They'd come 
for the festival and the holiday. And these first 120 Christians were now supernaturally empowered to preach the gospel, it says, in other tongues, other languages they didn't know. And in that moment, people from every tribe scattered since Babel, now back together, hearing the message of Jesus in their own language. What did it mean? John Stott, great Bible commentator, says this ever since. The early church fathers, commentators have seen the blessing of Pentecost as a deliberate and dramatic reversal of the curse of Babel. Here's the point. God, through Jesus, was bringing healing into the world, not through one language, but through one message spoken in all languages. Oh, it's so, it's the reverse of what we think. God doesn't honor, privilege one culture, does he? He honors and privileges all through one message. See, Pentecost was the reversal of Babel. God was, he is bringing healing into the world, in the middle of his city, bringing healing into our cities through the message of Jesus. And by the way, through a multi-ethnic community, as we see in Acts, our cities were intended to be good, but they become broken. God's heart for those cities is to be healed. And for us to do mission now, again, for us to be on mission with God, what it means for Mosaic Church as a people to be on mission with God now is to do our mission now in light of what that city will look like then. We've got, in a way, oh, not just a blueprint for the future, but a blueprint from the future, from the future. Now that's the teaching. So let me now spend some time, several minutes here, applying this in three ways. Some of you thought, man, he's done quick. Not so fast. You're not that lucky today. All right. (laughs) Let me just ask the question. What does it look like? What would it look like for us, this church, Mosaic, to be a people who bring healing into our city, greater Austin area? Well, I want to apply what you've heard this morning in the context, in these things, three, three things, the context of us, a multi-ethnic, multi-generational community. Here we go. Number one, we need, finally, a theology that heals. Theology of the Hills. I know many of you, of course, you come in and, you're new, and you love all the shiny, happy people holding hands here. It's beautiful and lovely, but here's what's going to happen, especially if you're newer, and yes, I'm talking to you. Everything looks bright and shiny. Oh, until you get under the hood of that car. And sooner or later, someone's going to say something to you. They're going to post something online. You're going to scratch your head. You're going to think, I thought I'd I, I go to church with them, right? Someone from another ethnic background, cultural background is going to say something, post something that even maybe theologically offends you, and that's going to happen. Because did you know people come from different backgrounds, and they've got some smaller downstream theologies just like you do, that they hold precious to them like you hold precious to you. And you bring in your stuff, and they bring in their stuff, and sometimes what sounds like crazy to you is precious to them and vice versa. So what I am asking you to buy into today for our mission is into a theology that heals, and here's what I mean. I do not mean a disregard for truth, because how many know God's truth heals? His truth brings light, salvation, healing to our souls, the psalm says. A disregard for truth, or for the creeds, or for the precious doctrines which we painstakingly lay out in our membership classes, and which the church has died for, and shed its blood for. What I do mean is a theology that takes as primary Jesus' command for us to love one another. That's good theology. You know that being good at loving is being good at theology in a way, right? Have you ever thought about it like that? Being bad at loving is actually bad at theology. You know, almost every time Paul, and this drives me crazy as a pastor, 
Paul addresses a cultural deal in his church, cultural divide. Here's his big solution. Love one another. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Paul, please help me. Be at peace with one another, he says. Forgive one another. Be kind to one another. Tender heart. Paul, what's your point? Slow down, he says. Listen to one another. Bears all things. Loves all things. Believes all things. Pray for one another. We can, listen, we can pride ourselves on being these really great theologians. But listen, we're good at loving people who are different than us. I don't think Jesus wants to hear as much about those theological statements, right? I do think he wants us to love one another in truth, with doctrine, yes. But loving one another because that's what he actually said to do, right? Because what happens then? Oh, as he said, if you'll do that, all people will know you're my disciples. All people will see me. All people will know my name. And that brings healing to the city, number one. Number two, not just theology that heals, but thinking that heals. Uh, recently, actually, last weekend, she said I could share this with you. Uh, a 20-something young lady, a young woman, came up to me after the service, and she started to cry while she's talking to me, which, you know, I never know how that's going to go, to be honest. But it went great, by the way, so no fear here. But she said, I want to thank you and thank all the people of this church said, you all have changed my life. I didn't grow up as a Christian. I grew up in a very secular, uh, liberal environment that just said all Christians were mean and, and judgmental and they hated people who weren't like them. She said, but for a number of reasons, she said, my life took a few turns. A friend invited me. I came here. I found Jesus. She's water baptized a few weeks ago. And she said, I want to thank you for making space for all kinds of people here. Just political uh, people or liberals or conservatives. Everyone welcome here. She said, it's changed my life. You know, the ancient Roman critic against Christianity, a guy by the name of Celsus, he said, here's his big critique of Christianity. He said, these Christians, there's too many different little groups, too many different little churches and sects. He says, all they have in common is the name, which they stubbornly refuse to deny. <laughs> Don't you love that? What if we thought like that? I think that's thinking that heals, shows the city who Jesus is. Number three, ultimately though, we need suffering that heals. It's a woman by the name of Perpetua. She was an early Christian martyr. She was a young African woman, educated, wealthy, who along with four other people were thrown to the wild beasts in the city of Carthage around 200 AD. She was the daughter, again, of a wealthy Roman aristocrat, but she converted to Christianity despite her father's pleas to abandon the church, despite her father even being beaten by the Roman authorities in front of her. She's arrested. She's brought to prison. And, this, and she goes into labor in prison because she's eight months pregnant. And one of the jailers, as she goes into labor, begins to mock her for her faith. Her jailer asked her, he said, you who are in such suffering now, what do you do when you're thrown to the beasts, which you despise when you refuse to sacrifice? I mean, to the emperor and the gods. She replied, now it is I that suffer what I suffer in childbirth. But then there will be another in me who will suffer for me because I also am about to suffer for him. Don't you love that? She gives birth in prison, finds another young woman in the church to care for her infant and raise it. And she has a series of visions which assure her that she will indeed die. And when she and her four companions are thrown to the beasts, the first two are killed by a bear. The third one is bitten by a leopard and bleeds to death. And she and her companion, Felicitas, they survive their attack against a crazed bull. And so the Roman authorities come out and stab them to death. 
But before she was stabbed, she asked for a moment to retie and redo her hair. As her hair had come down during the attack, see, undone hair was a sign of mourning in her culture. And she didn't want the crowd that day to perceive her appearance as someone mourning on the day she described as her day of happiness. In her day, in her time, in her city, hundreds of Christians were martyred. But do you know what their blood and suffering did for the gospel? Carthage, that city, became one of the leading centers of Christianity in the Roman Empire. And it produced so many of our faith's greatest leaders and thinkers. You may know the name Tertullian came from there. Who not only turned the tide of persecution against the church, away from the church, but it also shaped what you and I believe today. See, their blood, their suffering in their city, in part, brought a kind of healing to the Roman Empire. Now... And thankfully, the odds of you being eaten by a leopard or a bear, dying for your faith, are small, thankfully. But the odds of you suffering for your faith, bleeding in smaller ways for your faith, are pretty good if you want to really make a stand for Jesus, make a stand for righteousness, make a stand for justice in our city, make a stand for something that's right and true and good and noble and heroic. And maybe, if you can see that it's not in vain, that God sees all of it, When you suffer now, you'll have hope. You'll have hope. And maybe even if you suffer at the hands of somebody who ought to know better, maybe like a little stab or a wound from a Christian brother or sister, you shouldn't do it. But if you'll suffer in that way, guess what? Oh, over time, we begin, like Perpetua and Felicitas and their friends did, we bring healing, our community, our city, and the world.